0: grab your Bible. You can turn to Acts 16. If it's your first time joining us and you have a device or a Bible, um, you can can go to the ESV version. That's what we're going to be in this morning. So I encourage you to do that. What we're doing right now is we're continuing our worship now. Um, That part of the service, the singing, that is not just our worship, but we continue our worship now by opening God's word, leaning in to listen to what God has to say and then what we do is we finish by responding to these words of truth uh, in faith. So Acts 16 uh, is our passage this morning. We're going through these massively long uh, chapters in Acts right now. This is a book and a series that we started last September and it's going to take us through the end of August, uh, God willing by God's grace. So Acts 16 is where we're at. I remember uh, my dad's conversion story. It's something that has always just struck me. I've always loved it. Um, This was a guy, just a very short-tempered ex-sailor who uh, was a truck driver, owned a trucking company back in the 70s. And the story is that my mom came to saving faith in the gospel about a year before he did. And at one point after just, you know, hearing and seeing like what the Lord had done in my mom's life, uh, it all kind of culminated this one night in the rain at LAX So he's a guy delivering all of this freight up to the airport at LAX and he finds himself in this telephone booth, um, which is what they had back in the day, you know, and uh, there he is waiting to make a phone call while it's pouring rain out and there happened to be one of these, these Christian tracks, which if you don't know what those are, they're these little booklets that would tell a story uh, about what it means to, uh, to repent of your sins and and follow Christ. And uh, if you were to read them now, you'd go, oh my gosh, this is like the worst thing I've ever read in my life. But. Uh, you know for that particular moment in that particular season my dad opens this in this phone booth while it's pouring rain out he reads the story of the gospel and at that moment God did something in his life and in his heart to where he just collapsed inside and he realized that he needed the forgiveness of Jesus so he prays right there on the spot he receives Jesus as his savior and uh he experienced in that moment conversion and and transformation. And um, if you were to see his life after that. Again, I'm just a little kid, but if you could see the evidence of Christ in his life after that, man, it was just dramatic. It was this night and day thing. I mean, his marriage is saved. A guy that was, you know, tipping the scales on on being an alcoholic. I mean, all of that is delivered from those things. He re-engages with us as a family. Every part of our lives was transformed from that moment on. That's what we're going to see As we open Acts 16 this morning, we're really gonna see the story of a wealthy businesswoman named Lydia. We're gonna see a slave girl. We're gonna see a Gentile jailer who are converted by the power of the gospel through men who have been transformed by it. And as we read these stories, here's my hope, okay? My hope is that you might see your story in these stories and that if you don't yet have a story of trusting Jesus, uh, for your salvation, then, then our prayer as a church, not just me as a pastor, but as a church, is that God would open your eyes to see that there is no one beyond the saving grace of God and no better place to be in than to be saved by it. So let, let that be my plea to you today as a pastor, that you would receive this grace of Jesus Christ. And so, what we're going to do here in Acts 16 is we're, we're actually not going to start at the beginning of the chapter as we begin reading it, but we're going to go back to that in the end. But what we need to know as a setup here is that Paul, the Apostle Paul, Silas, his traveling companion, Timothy, a guy that he brings with him on the journey, Luke, the writer of this book, who was on this missionary journey with them, um, they've journeyed to the town of Philippi after the Holy Spirit, and we'll read about this in a minute, prevented them from traveling to two other cities, two other regions, the Holy Spirit hit the brakes and said, I don't want you to go there, but he moved them over into Macedonia to this city called Philippi. And what follows is three conversions stories that unfold for us here in the, the city of Philippi so we're just gonna pick up in verse 11 and read about the first of these three conversion stories so Acts 16 11, and it says so setting sail from Troas we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Diopolis and from there to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony and we remained in this city some days come to my house and stay and she prevailed upon us. So we're just going to hit the brakes. We're going to stop right there. So here's the setup. Since there was no Jewish synagogue in the city of Philippi, we have this crew, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Mark. They found a place to pray outside the city gates beside the water. And what Luke tells us here is that they gather around a group of women, and one woman in particular named Lydia happens to be a seller of it tells us purple goods. Now, the reason why Luke would mention that the goods were purple instead of like polka dots right is because purple dye in that time was expensive and so the the indicator here is that a seller of purple goods would be someone who had likely acquired some wealth and so it turns out that not only is Lydia here a wealthy businesswoman but she also worships God meaning she had embraced Israel's monotheistic faith, meaning that Israel worshiped one God as opposed to the pagan nations or the Greek nations who worshiped multiple gods. And yet it says, after hearing Paul's words, it says the Lord opened her heart and then she was baptized. So what's going on here exactly as we're diving into the story of Lydia? Well, a couple of things that I think are important for us to unpack here. Number one is that being a worshiper of God, which is what Luke says about Lydia, didn't mean Lydia was a follower of Jesus yet. Now, that can be kind of a shocking and kind of a troubling realization for some of us if we just sort of you know, settle in that and start thinking about what that means. Because what the, what's saying is that although she was someone who acknowledged maybe the existence of a Jewish God and even worshiped him from an intellectual standpoint, her heart hadn't been opened to the truth and the beauty of the gospel. And so what this tells us is that we can have either an inherited or even an acquired belief in God without having a faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is a distinction between those two things. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, makes this fascinating statement in the book of James chapter 2, verse 19. He says this, he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. And then he says this, he says, even the demons believe and shudder, right? Super interesting how he mentions their shuddering, isn't it, right? But it's helpful, if not sobering, to remember that demons are members of the I believe in God club, right? But what Lydia's conversion reminds us of is that having a belief in God is not the same, is putting your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Which, by the way, listen to this, is what saves a person from thinking that believing there is a God has any power to save them, right? So here's an example of that. Like, I, I can believe in electricity, and I do. I be- I'm, I'm like looking at a, at, a, at a LED clock, you know, 50 feet through the warehouse right now. Like, I believe in electricity, but until I have enough faith to actually flip the light switch on, Man, I'm going to remain in the dark. That's just the reality of what it means to go from an I believe in God kind of religious belief to actually having a true conversion, a true regenerated heart because of the saving work of Jesus Christ. And the second thing that Luke mentions is that the Lord opens her heart to pay attention. And so what this reminds us of is that although Paul was speaking words of biblical truth concerning the good news, it was actually the Lord who opened Lydia's heart to believe and to receive the truth by faith. And by the way, this is one of the exciting truths of Christianity, I mean, this is just something that gets us all jacked up, right? Which is that our faith is given to us through the grace of Jesus Christ with zero effort added, right? It's a no assembly required faith, this Christian faith that we just go on and on about, right? Unlike if you've ever built something from Ikea, right? Which makes you assemble that bookshelf through blood, sweat, tears, and cursing. Right, I probably shouldn't have said that, but you all know that's true, right? So in, in theological circles, what I'm talking about here, what this refers to is this thing called the effectual call of God, which means that when God calls a person, when he calls you to saving faith, you always answer the call in the affirmative. Well, how's that possible? Because it's impossible for God to make a bad call. Right. That's what that means. And that's a real good thing, by the way, for Christians or else we'd be losing sleep every night thinking that we are responsible for keeping ourselves saved and saving other people. Right. So that's a good thing. That's a blessing. That's an exciting thing. That's a freeing thing when we think about conversion and transformation. And so what's astonishing about this story of Lydia is wondering why a wealthy business owner in the first or even the 21st century would see her need for Jesus at all right I mean she had everything she needed so what was it that made her think that she was lacking something right I mean it would be important to ask that question why Lydia and maybe this rings a bell for you maybe this rings a bell for your story maybe you've been blessed with just some unusual abundance of material wealth But yet at the same time, you feel like there is this kind of unrelenting inner emptiness stirring inside of you that you just can't shake. And you can't shake it despite the fact that you live a, you know, a fairly moral life and you would claim belief in God just like Lydia. So what this story illustrates is that a person who has an abundance of friends maybe or money or position or even moral standing They can have their eyes open to what it is they're really lacking which is forgiveness from jesus for putting their faith in things that can't save them right so lydia saw her need and she was immediately baptized as a testimony to both her household and her community that she was now dead to sin and raised to new life in Jesus. So, so do you see the, the contrasting difference between just believing that there's some God or some power out there to actually coming to this saving faith and how it transforms even your very actions. And by the way, the, the beauty of this, the beauty and the bright hope of this transformation story is that it can be your story because there's really nothing unusual about this story other than that it's a completely amazing thing that somebody can go from death to life in the way that scripture tells us the power of the gospel can provide for us, right? And then we get to the second conversion here which is a slave girl, I'm gonna pick back up in, in verse 16 and this is what it says. out of her and it came out that very hour. Verse 19 it goes south now but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And When they had brought them to the magistrates they said these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stock. So this was a girl this slave girl who had what was called a spirit of divination or what we might say was demon possessed which is the spookier way of saying what was really going on here and she convinced the Philippian community that she could tell their fortunes and even worse was that she was the victim of exploitation by her owners who were profiting from her both her mental and her spiritual instability. So she begins stalking Paul in verse 17 saying, these are servants of the most high God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now, the townspeople, not being Jewish, they would have likely understood the words most high God to mean the Greek God, Zeus, okay? And just in case you thought apostles and disciples always kept their cool, Luke tells us that Paul becomes greatly annoyed And commands the demon, the spirit, to come out of the slave girl in the name of Jesus. And so by saying in the name of Jesus, what Paul is doing is he's making it very clear that the most high God that they were servants of was not the Greek God Zeus, but the Jewish God Yahweh. Now, of course, the rub was that as soon as the slave girl is released from bondage to demons, to faith in Jesus Christ... The owners, and they accuse, they attack, they end up beating the men. They they claim that they were advocating customs unlawful for Roman citizens. Basically, their uh, their living, the way that they made their money, their fortune was being uh was there was it, was it was it was being sort of split at the seams. But the problem here is that Paul and Silas are Roman citizens. And so to be accused, attacked, and beaten without a trial as Roman citizens by Romans was just a major, major problem. We'll we'll get more on that later. Um, So once again, this is what we're seeing here, okay, with this conversion story of this slave girl that was being released from the bondage of oppression. We see the unique power of the gospel. And that's, that's what I want to keep getting you back to is this unique transforming power of the gospel, and this is a story of a slave girl delivered from oppression and received into the family of faith. By the way, she didn't ask for it. She didn't earn it once again, right? This theme that goes with salvation, but God granted it to her through the words of an apostle who it says was greatly annoyed, right? I mean, I just wonder at the shock on people's faces after she had been delivered and they saw this young woman in her right mind. She made whole again not able to even do the bidding of her slave owners any longer. We would probably say, I can't believe it. I can't believe what I'm looking at right now. That's probably what we would have said. We remember the words of Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet, where God speaks to him and says, behold, I am the Lord. I am the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? And so maybe your story is like this. Maybe you're someone who's been taken advantage of. Maybe you have been used and exploited by an evil person or maybe a corrupt organization who were just greedy for their own gain and it's just left you feeling used and vulnerable and unstable and full of shame. Well, this is the hope of the gospel as we read this conversion story. The hope is that your hard story and hard life are not too hard for Jesus to heal. Psalm 147.3 tells us that the Lord heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. That's how vast and broad God goes. That's how intricate and deep God goes. And then it says, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding, the psalmist writes, is beyond measure. It's beyond measure. It's beyond anything that we as people even have the capacity to understand when we find ourselves in a vulnerable and shameful situation. And then it says the Lord lifts up the humble. Those of us who have been put into a humble position or been humbled by a position or something that has been, that has been dealt against us, right? And he casts the wicked to the ground. So sometimes we find ourselves in these situations of vulnerability, and we remember that through the power of the work and person of Christ, through the Holy Spirit, and we can be converted, we can be transformed, we can find healing of those wounds that we have that have shaped us and have formed us. Because things form you, things form me, but only one thing transforms us, And the third conversion story here is the story of the Gentile jailer here in verse uh, 25. So let's pick up right there where it says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. Verse 29, and the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So Paul and Silas are thrown into jail unjustly, And unlike me, who would be complaining that I couldn't get a burger, a warm bed, and Downton Abbey on Blu-ray, right? They start praying and they start singing of all the crazy things for them to do in this moment, right? And so what happens is God sends an earthquake, something insurance companies literally call an act of God. And the prison doors burst open. The prisoners' bonds become unfastened. And the jailer, all the commotion, it wakes them up. And then sadly, we see that in fear and in trembling, he grabs his sword to end his life because the fact is that part of his job was keeping prisoners secure. And if anyone escaped, he knows he would lose his life. But the prisoners haven't fled. They haven't just tried to get away in a mad rush. So Paul cries out. He says, hey, don't harm yourself, brother. We're all here. It's good. Relax. And then the first reply that comes out of the jailer's mouth is, what must I do to be saved? Isn't that interesting? Of all the things that he could have said, this is what comes out of his mouth. So, okay. It turns out he had heard those prayers and those hymns, which brought him to the end of himself. So in this twist of what we would say is divine irony, God uses the potential of escaped prisoners to show a jailer that he was nothing more than a prisoner himself. And so it begs the question for us, if someone heard our prayers and hymns, would they understand their need for salvation when everything started collapsing? And maybe you see your own story here in, in the story of the jailer. Maybe you're someone who has sat at a distance, listening to Christians pray and sing, Hearing preachers like me preach, and you think, it sounds interesting, but I don't think I'm at where they're at. Maybe you don't see yourself the way they see themselves, these Christians, as needy people in need of a savior. Maybe you maybe you see them as too needy, right? Too willing to accept this crutch of Christianity, right? And here's the thing, you, you might actually like being around them, But to be one of them, well, that's something that you're just not prepared for. So the question for you would be, what kind of earthquake needs to happen in your life to make you see yourself the same way this jailer saw himself? I mean, this brother was literally one snore away from death, right? What will it take for you to finally come to the end of yourself where you say, I'm as good as dead without Jesus? What's the answer for you? Well, the answer is the same answer Paul gives the jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. See your need. See how fragile your life is. See that you don't have the control that you thought you had. See that your life is like a thread. It's like a breath, as the psalmist writes. See how close we are and how frail we are to meeting our maker. And then asking the question, do we know the maker we're going to meet? Because that is the question that hangs in the balance for everybody's life. So what happened to the wealthy businesswoman, the slave girl and the Gentile jailer is called gospel regeneration. Do you see the effects of what happened here? This three different life stories all culminating in one story that ends in conversion and regeneration, right? It's not like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein where you receive some leftover old brain either. That's not what we're talking about. You've actually been made new again. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's what's going on with the transformations of these lives. Something new has come. Something old passed away. And so when a person's heart has been regenerated to become a follower of Jesus, their lives are like new again. Having been transformed from the inside out to serve Jesus and their neighbors with freedom and joy. It's like nothing else like we see in these stories. So here's how I want to finish our time today. I want to talk about what a transformed life looks like, because I think that we're given some unique qualities of what that looks like here um, as we go through Acts uh, 16. And the first one is this. What are some of the unique qualities of the transformed life? Number one, it's that we are led by the spirit. We are led by the by the Spirit. Let's go back to the beginning of the chapter and pick up in verse six. Look at what it says. It says, and they went through the region of uh, Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go in Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them, it says. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So one of the unique qualities of the transformed life is that we are led by the Spirit. We are led by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who exists inside of us is the third person of the Trinity. Matthew Henry, this old school theologian, he made this quote. He said, the servants of the Lord Jesus ought to be always under the check and conduct of the Spirit of the Lord Jesus by whom he governs men's minds. We'll kind of unpack what it means to be, have our minds governed by the Holy Spirit. So who is the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, who are the three persons of what's called the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Jesus describes the work of the Holy Spirit in John 14, 26. is what he says about it so that we have some clarity on the role and the work of the Spirit. He says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, what he's called, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So this unique thing happens where the disciples are instructed by the Holy Spirit from traveling to two different regions that they had planned to preach the gospel in. So what do they do? They listen and then they obey. They concluded that this was the direction the Spirit was driving them. Now, what's interesting is that Upon conversion, upon transformation, you have the same spirit living inside of you if you are like the men and women here uh, in Acts 16. So for us, what this means is listening to the spirit, the Holy Spirit is entering every situation, every scenario of our lives and submitting to what is the good and loving commands of God. And so one of my jobs as a pastor um, is to ask this question, are we keeping in step with the spirit by obeying the commands of God. John said in 1 John 5, 3, he said, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And then he says this, and his commandments are not burdensome, right? Because we're not keeping them to earn our keep. We're keeping them because our keep has been earned by Jesus. What a radical and what a crazy differentiation we have to make between those two things over and over again. And so here's what happens is that the fruit of that listening and that obeying will be what's called the fruit of the spirit, which we read about in Galatians 5. What are those things? Well, love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That will be what we become most characterized by as we continue to listen to the Spirit by obeying the non-burdensome commands of God because our heart just keeps expanding in love for wanting to please Him and wanting to be close to Him, right? Galatians 5 16 and 17 also reminds us that dude, this is a battle. What we're describing here is not just a walk in the park. It's not just something we nail upon conversion. Um, this is something that is, is, a, is, a, is a sanctifying process, right? And it's a battle. It's hard as nails. Uh, Galatians 5 16, Paul says, but I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh, he said, they're against the spirit, right? And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So we have this battle inside of us, raging flesh against the spirit that we now have the power and the strength and the endurance to find ourselves getting through with some measure of progress and victory, even though at times there is no progress and there is no victory, right? And in those moments, we trust that the Lord has not abandoned us because he was the one that did the saving of us out of our abandonment in the first place, right? So then the question then comes, what if I don't want to obey God's commands? Like, what if I just don't want to do that, Martin? Well, cool, but don't think that you're not obeying any commands, right? You're still obeying the commands of your flesh, which means you're a slave, buddy. You're a slave to your flesh, But one of the unique qualities of the transformed life is that you become a different kind of slave, the Bible tells us. You become a slave to righteousness while being led by the spirit of Jesus who frees you, who teaches you, and who helps you from being a slave and a punk to your own desires. I don't know how else to put it. Which, by the way, ends in a life separated from God after death. So that's the real truth of what this leads to in an ultimate sense. And so one of the unique qualities of the transformed life is that we are led by the Spirit. We have the Spirit of God living and breathing inside of us, helping us, teaching us, instructing us, encouraging us. Don't you want that? I want that, I need that. Secondly, another unique quality is that we have a redeemed hospitality. A redeemed hospitality. It's interesting that the first thing we see Lydia do upon conversion is offering her home to Paul and Silas and Timothy and and Luke. So one of the unique qualities of a transformed life is is just that. It's a hospitality that's been redeemed. And what I mean by redeemed is that you give to others out of either your poverty or your abundance because you don't see anything you have as your own anymore anyway, right? Right? And by the way, you you don't have to be a follower of Jesus to be hospitable. There's plenty of people that don't follow Christ and they, they have a gift and a longing and a yearning to be hospitable. But here's the thing. This is what we know. It won't be a completely selfless hospitality like we see from those who have been redeemed, right? Christian hospitality is extended and given from one, a heart not looking to get anything in return. Again, this is when it's working at its most sanctified, right? And number two, as a way to justify yourself before God or man. So, man, I'm just going to be nice to this person because it makes me feel good and I feel like I got to earn my keep with God, right? We, we kind of explored that earlier. So what happens is with redeemed hospitality is you do things that will cost you. Because the price for your life has already been paid by Jesus. And it frees you up to do that. You love the strangers in your life and in your neighborhood. Because before God saved you, you were a stranger, right? And of course, we get a pretty expansive glimpse of redeemed hospitality from Jesus. Jesus welcomed the stranger, right? He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He shared meals with sinners. Imagine a heart. That unconcerned with keeping everything to themselves. How freeing is that? That's one of the unique qualities of a transformed life. Third, another unique quality is deliverance from oppression. It's funny to read how Paul was greatly annoyed by the slave girl. But then, what does he do? He shows kindness and care to her by delivering her from oppression. Oppression. Man, we see that all through the Gospels when we read about Jesus who routinely healed the sick, cast out demons, broke the chains of sin for those experiencing oppression. So one of the unique qualities of the transformed life is our ability to lead others to the truth. To have compassion on those who are under the bonds of sin and oppression and offer them the freedom that Jesus has to deliver them. It's such a unique thing that God uses former prisoners, all of us, to set other prisoners free. They hear our stories of deliverance. They hear the way God is reordering our desires. They see the hope that is not out of reach now, that is not conceptual, but that is effectual when it's grounded in God. Man, maybe you have just never seen the freedom you have in Christ as an advertisement for transformation, for God using you to lead others to truth. By the way, you do it with everything else, right? Every product that you use is an advertisement for some kind of freedom, for some kind of expression. Right? I drive this car because it gets me places. It gets me from A to B. It gets me out of Dodge. I wear these clothes so that I, when I walk out of the house, I don't get arrested because I'm not wearing clothes, right? It provides me with a freedom. I live in this particular house or apartment so that I have shelter from the rain, the snow, the heat, and the cold. Everything we do, everything we purchase, everything we make much of is an advertisement for what it's doing for us. Right? for what kind of freedom, for what kind of benefit it's providing for us. Our stories of salvation and transformation are the same kind of advertisement. They help lead people, they help deliver people from oppression. Number four, one of the unique qualities of a transformed life is rejoicing through suffering. And this one is just remarkable, all right? Paul and Silas are thrown into prison. The first thing they do is start praying and singing. That's a unique quality, the ability to rejoice in suffering. And by the way, they had no ability to do it in their own strength. We don't have any ability to do that in our own strength. But the same spirit that lived inside of Jesus lives inside of us. So you know what that means? It means that we can endure suffering with joy, knowing that we're going to experience a greater weight than the weight of suffering if we endure the way that Jesus endured it. Now, it is right and it is good and it is necessary for us to grieve unlawful and unjust suffering and do everything we can to stop it when we have the power to do that, right? But to sing, catch what's going on here, to sing through suffering is something the Bible tells us we are given the power to do because we have an inner condition of the soul and a renewed mind that knows pain will not have the last word. That is one of the unique qualities of the transformed life. Number five, we're also given sacrificial love for our enemies. How do you explain the actions of the jailer? He washes the disciples' wounds. He brings them to his house. He feeds them. These dudes were like enemies like an hour ago. And all of a sudden he's caring for them. It reminds you of the parable of the good Samaritan who walked by and saw a Jewish person who was an enemy of his and he ends up taking him in, healing his wounds, paying for his medical bills, showing him love and care. And of course, we see how much Jesus lived this out, specifically on the cross when he prayed for God to forgive his enemies, for they just didn't know what they were doing. He also reminds us in the book of Luke, chapter 6, 35, he says, hey, listen, love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great, he says, and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So one of those unique qualities of a transformed life is this sacrificial kind-heartedness, this sacrificial love for even our enemies. And we get that built into us as a virtuous quality by none other than the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then finally, one of the qualities of a transformed life is passion for the spread of the gospel. When we pick up in verse one here of Acts 16, it says, Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra and a disciple was there named Timothy. It's the first time we hear about Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. So the Bible talks a lot about our passions becoming reordered once a person is saved and is being sanctified in their faith. So when we go to the beginning of the chapter, we see Paul bringing in this young dude named Timothy who had a Jewish mother and a a Greek father. And because of this, Timothy was never circumcised right? In terms of keeping with the laws and rituals of the Jewish faith. So Paul has him circumcised because he joins them on on their next journey. Now, didn't we just read in the last chapter that circumcision is unnecessary for a person's salvation? Wasn't Paul just kind of stringent about that? Didn't Paul fight for that? Well, he did, right? Well, then why is he having Timothy circumcised? What's the deal? Is this contradictory? Well, no, it was to remove an obstacle so that their work wouldn't be hindered. If people found out Timothy was an uncircumcised Jew because his mom was Jewish. Now that doesn't mean Paul changed his position on the gospel or changed his position on grace. It means he didn't want there to be any barriers to come in the way of winning souls to Jesus. So Paul had a passion for the spread of the gospel. This also ties to the very end of Acts 16 and 30 verses 35 through 40. And this is, how the, this is how the story ends in chapter 16. He says, but it was day the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. Right. So everything's cool. They've been locked up. They were beaten. They were attacked. They were accused. Let them go. And the jailer reported these things to Paul saying the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly. Uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. Do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. So the police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison, visited Lydia. When they'd seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is a long sermon, guys, so just keep rolling with me, all right? So this ties us in from the beginning of Acts 16 to the end of Acts 16, which is that Paul and his men had a passion for the spread of the gospel. The magistrates try to let Paul inside this go. Paul says, not gonna happen, right? He's like, you've unjustly accused, attacked, Beaten and imprisoned, by the way, to Roman citizens, and you just think we're gonna go quietly? And so, what's interesting is that if we're being honest, right, it kind of strikes us a little like unforgiving, doesn't it? Like, Paul, why are you making a scene here, man? I mean, they're letting you go. Just go, man. Just go. Just be quiet. Just back away. It's cool, right? Well, here's the difference, okay? Paul isn't causing a stir to demand his own rights like. I would probably do, you might do, or to seek personal justice. But for the sake of gospel advancement, right? He didn't want the people of Philippi to think that they had been advocating customs that were unlawful for Roman citizens since they themselves were Roman citizens who preached and believed the gospel. So by leveraging this Roman citizenship that Paul and Silas possessed, and getting a public apology, it kept the gospel from being seen as something unlawful for Roman citizens in Philippi, right? So one of the unique qualities of a transformed life is a passion to see the gospel spread with this few barriers as possible right so we use wisdom we use strategy when necessary we want to stay close to the truth but we also want to see gospel truth not hit any walls and so we're so passionate about that because the way the gospels changed us that we want to see it go out we want to see it convert people we want to see it transform people because we are walking stories of that conversion and that transformation all right so where does this leave us today Well, I think what this commits us to doing is number one, asking Jesus to renew our minds with the wonder of who we've been transformed to be like. Do you ever wonder why Jesus isn't as wonderful to you as he should be? I mean, just think of anything else that's wonderful to you. Think of anything else that you'd be all super just excited to tell me about. And then what you want to do is think of who's responsible for the wonder of it, right? So a transformed life puts the attention on the one who did the transforming, not just the transformed. The focus here is not really on Lydia or the slave girl or the jailer, but on the one who has the power to transform their minds and give them new identities. That's where the source of the joy lies. Do you guys get that? We're just transformed Jesus is the one who does the transforming, and that's the wonder of it when you see these lives unfolding. And secondly, we need to remember the power at work in us through the Holy Spirit, because here's the reality. Everything in your life is forming you, but only Jesus has the ability and the power to transform you. Because without the work of the Spirit, like Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke had, where else will you find the power to stand up to spiritual attacks? How else will you have the wisdom to discern truth from lies? How else will you acquire endurance when suffering hardships, collapsing relationships, financial instability, and unjust abuses from others? How else? Only the transforming power of the Holy Spirit can reform your insides in such a way that you have a unique power that allows you to live as you have never lived before and then finally we need to think hard about our own stories the importance of our own stories we need to write them down we need to pray how God might use them because they're astounding stories here's what I'm going to say to all of you right and just just throw it back at me how are you of all people saved how how are you saved how am I saved How did God save this, me, of all people, right? Some of you don't think you have a story worth sharing. Why is that, do you think? Because by thinking that, you're discounting the miracle of new birth that Christ is responsible for giving you. It's a remarkable story, not because you're remarkable, but because the one who redeemed you and gave you this story is remarkable. I can keep going on and on, but I'm gonna end it right there and pray that the Lord would press these transformed realities just so deep into our soul today, that he would would give us a sense of remembrance of what it was and what it meant as we read these conversion stories to be saved by grace and to have our lives be just so just changed from darkness into light and what that means and what the implications mean and what we have and who embodies us now for strength and power and endurance and humility and life. And love It's nothing less than the power of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for this power that has been given us, not of our own, not originating somewhere inside of us in some pocket that we're able to unearth, but it comes from the work of the Holy Spirit, Lord, through the power of, of Jesus, the power of the cross, God sending his son, thank you for this work, Lord, that has been done on our behalf, Lord, so that we can experience the transformed life and you can use us for the transformation of others. I pray that you would do that. You would give us great remembrance of who you are and everything you've done so that we can rejoice today. We can praise you today. We can experience some kind of life and happiness today, remembering who we are, where we came from, and how you changed us and how you continue to change us so slowly but ever so surely. So thanks for this reality and this truth, we pray in Christ's name, amen.